Well, have you ever considered what you're doing on your work computer might not be received well? Say if a manager or a boss was looking over your shoulder or was reading what you were doing. Have you ever wondered where is the line when it comes to what you can do with a work computer and what you absolutely should not do? Well, Olivia Bowden is a national online journalist at Lifestyle with Global News and joins us on the line. Olivia, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, You've written about this, which I think is an interesting one. People do uh, wonder about this. And because we do spend so much time on devices, whether it's phones or computers that are actually work devices, uh, what are some of the rules that that go with using uh, equipment that is supplied by work? Well, it really depends on the guidelines your work has given you. So it's important to check those. Uh, But what the experts have really told me is, you know, things like email, Um, you should expect email to definitely be monitored. So any conversation you want to have that's not work-related, really keep that off email. Um, Everything else is usually okay as long as you're not doing it in an excessive, excessive way. So if you're on Facebook all day, then you're going to tip off your employer a little bit that something may be off. All right. And when you say monitored for an email, are they monitoring it, say, for keywords? or, Or should people just assume that their emails, that somebody might be reading them? Well, it's not that they're, you know, looking at your email all day, every day. Um, They probably would only go in to see your email um, if they feel like you might be doing something wrong. Um, But but you may not know the reason, but email is definitely something that they probably can have access to without, um, you know, having too much of a, of a reason uh, beforehand. So what, what, what a couple of uh, labor lawyers told me is they need a really good reason uh, to search your devices, even if the workplace owns the devices. But um, email is something that you can definitely expect that they, that they may have permission to, to take a look at. All right. Because I know a lot of workplaces, even when you log on, it'll say right on the screen of the computer that there is no right to privacy in this system. Yes. But you've yes. quoted or cited a Supreme Court decision that actually says that that employees are entitled to a certain amount of privacy or confidentiality. Yes, that's true. So even if your computer does say, you know, that this there's no right to privacy on this device, um, if if it came down to a court case, the Supreme Court's, uh, you know, their, their decision in 2012 really shows that they do believe that, you know, you have a certain extent to a right to privacy. Um, so, so, so what a lawyer told me is, you know, your, your employer can't overdo it. So say, um, you know, say they feel like, you know, you've been watching Netflix at work and now they want to check your computer. Well, they can't say, you know, give me all the data from the computer uh, for the last several years, everything you have. Um, it has to be reasonable. It has to be um, only a certain amount for what they think is a problem. And really, if they have a problem with you, the first thing they should be doing is having a talk with you rather than putting keystrokes on your on your keyboard. Um, which makes sense completely. Um, you also touch on this because I think also for a lot of people, if you get a phone from work or a laptop from work, there's a good chance that you might make a personal call or you might be doing something mm-hmm. on it, even if it's on your own time that's not work-related. Is is that okay? Well, I, I think, it, again, it really depends on your employer. Most employers, you know, the bo- like the experts said, the boss is not, you know, twiddling their thumbs ready 
to, you know, check all your text messages on a, on a, on a work phone. Um, they, they really are only going to be tipped off if, you know, you seem to be doing something wrong all the time. But, you know, if, if, if you're using a work phone and you make, you know, one text to your wife or, or to your husband and, or whoever um, saying, hey, can you pick up the groceries or something like that? That's that's not really uh, something that that's not really a fireable uh, offense there. But again, they emphasize that even with all those, you know, uh, privacy protections in place, um, depending on your work's guidelines, if they're really strict, you might have to watch out for that. Right. Absolutely. And and I guess, too, you have to be careful on when it's a work device, if you're downloading apps or what you're actually doing on it. You'd have to justify, I would think, if you have downloaded things onto yes. it, that you need those things for your work. Yes, definitely. Do not download a dating app or anything like that on your work phone, <laughs> is what I would say. Yeah, although you make a good point in that I would hope that bosses and managers are, are busier, busy enough that they're not, like you said, just spending all of their time scouring employees' phones and devices, that there would have to be some some issue or something that's tipped them off or that, that's a red flag to, to make them yes. actually pay attention. Yes, yeah, so, so something would have to be off. Um, you, you would have to, you know, have clear signs that you're not getting your work done and that you're up to something else um, on the devices. But, but, and then in that case, really the first line of, of, of how to communicate with you about that is the, the lawyers told me what they really should do first is have a talk with you saying, hey, we noticed you're not getting your work done. We've had reports that you're on social media all day. Um, or... Um, another issue is if you're doing illegal activity on the computer and that's completely different than if you're, you know, just on Twitter. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. (laughs) I remember a story a few years ago and I can't remember what the workplace was, but it was somebody at this, this workplace and it had come up that one of their employees who worked remotely was constantly using Microsoft Word, but there was nothing in her job that she needed to use Word for. So when they looked into it, they then found out she was actually getting her PhD and she was writing her thesis, but writing it constantly wow. when at work. But it may, it okay. really highlighted the, that, that, that you might not think just having Microsoft Word open is something that you could get caught, but they certainly had every right once they realized there was a program and it wasn't an illegal program or anything, but when, when it wasn't connected to her work, they started investigating. Right. So, you know, these, these are the things where I know your workplace's guidelines, because if you took it all the way to court, that's when you might have privacy rights. But if you're, if you're just dealing with your workplace um, and you don't want to, you know, take those steps, it's, it's better to be more careful, um, is what the experts really told me. Like in Canada, you do have rights, but you're really going to have to get to the court level <laughs> for those rights to show up, essentially. Right. So I, I mm-hmm. guess really even looking at this and looking at the court decisions and that the, the bottom line is don't do anything with a work device that if a manager or boss was to see it, to, you could get in trouble. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, to, to a reasonable extent. Like I said, if, if you need to you know, call your child's school or you need to send off a quick message or even if you're on Slack and you send one coworker a funny video, that's usually not a reason <laughs> to, you know, scour your device, take all your data. But again, uh, really be aware of, of how strict your workplace policies are.
All right. That is uh, good advice. Uh, Olivia, thanks so much. Great piece. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, my next guest is a city councillor in Richmond. And this past week, she put forward a motion asking that staff take a look at the investments council has, particularly portfolios with some of the big banks and looking at perhaps divesting in fossil fuel investments. Well, Kelly Green, again, a Richmond city councillor, joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, So what exactly did you put forward or what were you hoping staff would review? Um, Well, I was hoping that they would take a look at um, our investment category with the major banks. Um, We do have in Canada major banks that are heavily, heavily involved in uh, the expansion and financing of uh, fossil fuels. And so I wanted to have staff take a look at um, the exposure of those um, fossil fuel assets and then um, bring forward options and an analysis and, um, you know, tell us where we're, at, where we're at and what our options are. And is the reason for that in that you think it's, it's wrong to be investing in fossil fuels or you think it's a bad investment? Um, I, I think what we're looking at is that, you know, we've declared a climate emergency. Everybody knows that we need to do more to make sure that we're meeting our Paris targets. Um, so we're literally betting against ourselves. So if we're saying that these are a good investment, we're saying that we're probably going to fail. Uh, and we're going to fail spectacularly because if we are um, uh, going through enough of these fossil fuels, extracting them from the ground um, to make this a good investment, then that means that we have blown past our targets. So um, conversely, if we think that we are going to be successful, that we are going to meet our targets, then um, these kinds of assets in in the fossil fuel industry are actually hugely overvalued to what their real value is because they're not going to be able to um, access the, um, you know, so-called wealth that they have in the ground. So so either way we lose, I think we really need to have a, a closer look at, um, you know, what we're holding as assets for um, the citizens of Richmond. Right. Um, so with the banks, though, I mean, there's one thing that big banks are pretty good at, and that is making money. So would you not trust the banks that if these investments suddenly turn and aren't giving them the returns, they would choose to divest, they would choose to diversify their portfolios? Well, here's the thing. There's lots of banks. Not all of them are in fossil fuels. Um, so that's why I was asking um, our, our staff to take a look at, um, you know, the, the entirety of that portfolio, because there are banks that aren't um, investing in fossil fuels. There are banks that are very, you know, um, might have just a couple. There are banks that are have got, you know, $60 billion um, in this um, field. So I think that that's where the analysis would come in so that we can get more information and make educated decisions. Um, but, you know, I think that it's important to know that not all banks are created equal. Right. Uh, who makes the actual decision on where the council or where the city of Richmond invests? Um, the city council would ultimately be able to decide where um, the investments go under the advice of our staff. Our staff are fantastic and, and they do good work. And um, uh, I think it's important that we uh you know, take a look at their analysis. Um, But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, we're responsible. And what kind of a response did you get from your fellow councillors? It was quite mixed. And and as the result was, it it, um, failed on a tie vote. I think that um, 
there was a, a reluctance to even look at the issue um, for, for some folks. Um, but I think that um, deciding without information that you're not going to do something is um, not the best governance. And was your motion then to only look at the big banks or to look at everywhere that the city has investments? Um, well, because the, the the way that the charter is structured, um, we're really um, limited in the kinds of investments we can make and even in the percentage of our portfolio that we can hold in different categories, for example, government bonds and um, top tier banks and um, credit unions and such. So, um, you know, I think that that's um, important that we that we look at um, the different categories, but really it, we are just looking at banks because we don't have a lot of assets in, um, in anything else because we're restricted by the charter. Right. Uh, was there any concern, though, but that by putting this motion forward, you're kind of giving the, the idea to staff that they're not doing as good of a job as they could be doing? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think that that's the case because you know there's often times where there's emerging issues and um, staff would need direction on um, you know we're changing course. Uh, so that's that's why um, bringing a motion forward to to uh, seek additional information and clarification is important because if there is an emerging issue, um, staff might not have the uh, latitude to you know, go out and and make all these changes um, without that. And and is it a balancing act or or how do you how do you balance the two? Because they they do seem to be two different issues, one being uh, investing in in banks or companies that are investing in fossil fuels. It seems like there's kind of the moral issue when it comes to the Paris Agreement. But then there's also the issue of you still want to get as much return for your investments as you possibly can. How do you kind of balance those two? Well, you know, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I don't think that you can say that we can only make money if we're going to destroy the planet. I think that that's a a fallacy. So, um, again, I think that's why we need to go and uh, look at investments and and see where we can get good returns um, with perhaps other financial institutions that aren't um, heavily involved in fossil fuel uh, development and um and go from there but um i they're not mutually exclusive and and um we need to do better there are a lot of banks that while they would have fossil fuel investments they also invest clean energy would it make a difference if their their investments are diversified like that Clean energy investments are important um what i've seen from um my research is that the 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 um the heaviest fossil fuel companies tend to greenwash themselves by throwing you know some token money at um uh green investment so uh, or green energy so i think um uh, again there's like a deeper dive that needs to be done to to know whether um they are genuinely transitioning are we looking at a bank that is reducing its portfolio of uh, fossil fuels every year it might still be large but every year it's going down and every year green energy is going up that's something that's important but um uh, without more information it would just be speculative Uh, you mentioned uh, it failed on a tie vote what do you do next or do you have any plans to continue with this um i think that it's important to keep talking about it um you know 
I, I can't bring back uh, a motion that's that's failed. So um, I'm, you know, perhaps by continuing to have these conversations, one of uh, the members that um, voted against it may have a change of heart and bring it forward again. I, I don't know. I would be hopeful. Um, but um, I, I think it's an important conversation that we continue to have in the public domain. Uh, I don't know if you heard yesterday, UBC announced that it's divesting from fossil fuels. This is something that's happening around the world. It's not new. Um, uh, the head of the Bank of England has talked extensively about the risk of uh, fossil fuels um, and, and the risk of um, the producers uh, being highly overvalued, and that um, banks are highly exposed because they're not dis- they're not disclosing that risk. So, um, uh, this is a conversation that's not over. It's 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 uh, just beginning. All right. Well, we will leave it there for now, uh, but I'm sure we will talk about it again. Councillor Green, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Hope you have a good one. All right, you too. Well, a new report released this week from RBC takes a look at navigating the 2020s. In fact, that is the name of the report. And it also looks at the aging demographic and climate change, two of the issues in this report. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about it is Daniel Fontaine. He is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Daniel, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me on, Joe. Uh, the first line of the second chapter of the report says the loudest sound of the 2020s may be the ticking of the demographic time bomb. What do you say to that? Well, that, that type of language definitely is uh, a tad inflammatory, but I think what they're trying to do is to get the public's attention because um, this is the first report I've actually seen from a, a national organization like uh, RBC to actually connect the climate crisis along with the uh, aging demographic issue that we're going to have in this decade. It's the first time we've talked about aging, you and I have, and I've been out there talking about this for many years, but the first time a report like this has actually looked into the next decade and said, look, we're going to have two major challenges facing our society, one being climate change and the other one that we're simply not talking enough about, and that's the fact that our population is aging and there's going to be some huge ramifications to our society and our economy if we don't do something immediately to address that. So what do you think could be done immediately? Well, the report highlights the fact that, uh, for example, one of the stats that they use, which I hadn't actually seen before, but they've uh, quantified that by the end of this decade, there'll be about uh, 650,000 people that will need uh, long-term care beds in, in Canada. That is equivalent to the entire population of Vancouver being uh, in a care home. So right now we're about 200,000 short of that. Um, we're looking at in the last few years uh, here at, just in British Columbia, for example, we've only had a handful of new long-term care beds that have been announced uh, and to expand the system. So we need to do a lot more to, to make those investments. We need to be talking about the fact that uh, we're going to have different types of housing. Um, we're looking at the west side of Vancouver. People are aging. They're, they're leaving their single-family homes is there the kind of uh, independent living sites and assisted living sites and long-term care sites in those communities so people can age in place? And sim- the answer is simply no uh, on that front. So there are many things. There's no there's no shortage of recommendations for government and there, there are no shortage of ideas. But what we do lack, I think, is the uh, kind of uh, the sense of urgency to take action. And that's what I hope the report uh, uh, triggers for government. Right, because it's not as though we're looking well into the future in this no. particular one. I mean, this is talking about some of the numbers that you just said, and it's looking 10 years down the road mm-hmm. and facing some of these huge challenges. 
Mm-hmm. And I'd also like to emphasize as well that I don't want people to get lulled into thinking that the problem is going to occur in 2030. Uh, I, I'm here to tell you today that we are right in the midst of this. There are people who cannot get access to long-term care. There are people who are waiting for long-term care. We've declared, for example, in, in BC, in the interior, uh, uh, an emergency in terms of uh, a lack of ability to get uh, staff. People are retiring uh, faster than we can recruit them and bring them in the system. That health human resources emergency was expanded to Vancouver Island in the fall. And I, I tell you, we're, we're right in the middle of this. And, and I'm looking at the next decade, as RBC said, and the aging uh, demographic issue is going to be challenging us all. And we all likely, all your listeners likely know somebody who's um, over 65, somebody who's potentially over 85, who's going to need that kind of care. And unless we get going on it, um, we're going to be talking about this crisis in the same way we are talking about the climate crisis uh, over the next decade. And, and so as far as solutions, though, because it is one of the areas in healthcare where we see private care, we see private facilities, mm-hmm. uh, many of them advertise right here on this station uh, mm-hmm. that people uh, people are, are use, obviously, there's a huge demand for that. But as you said, there's also uh, um, subsidized facilities, there's government facilities. So what is is the solution a continued mix of the two mm-hmm. or what do you see? It absolutely has to be a mix, as it always has been uh, a mix. And we have to make sure that... Uh, for example, uh, and I'm going to reference again the west side of Vancouver, but that you know that these types of developments are are supported and approved. For example, even things like independent living and assisted living sites. Um, I've seen just in my time here with the BC Care Providers uh, projects that have been uh, you know gone to city council and haven't been approved in places like Vancouver when we know that people are aging and they want to live in place. So. We definitely need a mix. We need definitely need government investment uh, in uh, the long-term care system and in home care. There's no doubt about that. But just the government alone itself won't be able to address this issue. It's going to be a mix of both private and uh, publicly funded uh, uh, long-term care and home care that's going to actually address this issue. But I would also argue that it is critical for government because this is where they can play a role is to make sure that there are enough people trained, enough people recruited, and that we have the workforce needed to actually work uh, in these sites and work for these uh, these operators in the next decade. And right now, I can tell you, we're not we're just simply not doing that. Well, and that's raised in this report as well. Even talking about the numbers, saying that working age Canadians and I'm quoting the report now, working age Canadians will feel the financial squeeze. There will be fewer of them to shoulder the additional costs of our aging society. Absolutely. The, 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 the data and the stats on it are, I did a presentation for the Vancouver Board of Trade uh, uh, just a few weeks ago and I showed them some statistics around the number of workers that are in the workforce compared to those who are retired. And it is quite shocking to see how few people will be in the workforce compared to those who are retired. So the, the economics of it, and this is why RBC, I'm assuming, has issued the report. They're looking into the next decade and saying there are going to be fewer people working, more people are retiring out and leaving the workforce, and it's going to cause you know huge pressures on our economy unless we can uh, map out a plan immediately to manage that over the coming decade. And that includes things like immigration and making sure that we're bringing people in uh, to not only repopulate the country, but also to make sure that people can work in places like uh, care homes and, and for home care. And also to make sure that we make the, the necessary investments that uh, we're going to need when people want to, to retire. And so I'm, I'm pleased they put out that report. And I'm also very pleased that 
they've actually connected it with climate uh, uh, change and the climate crisis because I think it's equally as important to dealing with that. And that, I mean, is that even something not as simple as, but something that the focus needs to be also on where the housing is built? Absolutely, yeah. Like we, w- British Columbia is a destination for retirees. I mean, that's something we've been kind of proud of. It's a beautiful place in Canada, and people love to retire here. But the the flip side of that is that British Columbia will also be dealing with uh, the fact that many more people are going to be aging and requiring uh, everything from acute care services to long term care to home care. The full gamut of of healthcare services are going to be required uh, in in greater demand over the next decade. So. We have to make sure that those services are available in uh, urban centres for sure, but also there's a lot of people in rural British Columbia listening to you from from places that don't necessarily have um, a great access to long-term care. And those communities as well need to make sure that um, they can age in place. And uh, I, like I said, we need to do more than simply do a, you know several hundred new uh, long-term care beds in, in a few years. We need to. Our, a report that we issued called Bedlam in BC indicated that we needed about 5,000 new beds uh, in British Columbia. And so we're definitely encouraging uh, that additional investment in partnership as well with the, with the private sector. And just one other point on the workforce, as you mentioned, ha- making sure that there are enough workers to support more care beds, uh, more long-term facilities. How do you go about doing that? Because even uh, chatting with the nurses union this past week, mm. that they too are dealing with chronic <coughs> shortages of nurses. How do you even begin to deal with a shortage of healthcare workers? Well, I think you have to do, excuse me, what the minister has said is, is celebrate the positions and make sure that these positions are, are celebrated and that we, we value those positions uh, like, like any other positions we see or hear about in the community that are in demand. We need to make sure we do that. But more importantly, we need to make sure that we train enough people, that we have spots in our colleges. We have to open up things like apprenticeships for healthcare. We simply don't do that. We open up apprenticeships for a lot of male-dominated occupations. We don't do it for a lot of female-dominated occupations like healthcare. We have actually uh, written a couple of reports. We've issued those to the public and to government. We've actually laid out a pathway and, and mapped out how this can be addressed. So it's not like we don't have the answers to it. But what we're lacking is is a sense of urgency to actually take action and get moving on this. So we know there is a combination of additional investments in, in training, recruitment, using the immigration system. All of that, uh, if it were employed in the next coming months, I, I can tell you we can address this. We can actually deal with that. And I'm confident that we would actually have enough workers to make sure that people have the care when they need it. But if we continue to talk about this and continue to issue more reports and and, and more studies and more committees. We're going to be uh, not knee-deep into this. We're going to be right up to our chin uh, before we know it. All right. So we will leave it there. Daniel Fontaine, uh, thanks again. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Joe. Well, are you waiting for Uber and Lyft to arrive in B.C. because you would like to be a driver for one of the companies? Maybe you know somebody who is. Do you have concerns about uh, the so-called gig economy and when it comes to workers' rights, people working in that economy? Well, my next guest has written about this. Paul Wilcox is a journalist and now an editor with the TIE and joins me on the line. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Joe. My pleasure. Uh, You wrote this piece. The title, the headline is, Who Sticks Up for the Gig Worker? What are some of your concerns about people who choose to work in the gig economy? Well, I think what this is the gig economy or precarious work or whatever you want to call it. Uh, We realized that the TAI was one of the uh, bigger changes that's come to the the workplace uh, in the last 
decade, I guess, really. 2009 is when sort of Uber and Airbnb sort of started this concept of technology-driven jobs. But it's really also just the latest in a long series of erosion of the kind of work that we used to think of as a normal job, where you stayed with one employer for a very long time, you got pension, you got benefits. It may not have been perfect. There was still lots of conflict. But, you know, that's our grandparents for the most part, or at least my grandparents, you know, got hired on at uh, a large factory in my in my uh, one grandparent's case. And that's worked, he worked there for 40 years with occasional layoffs when times got tough. And we really changed from that. And the real concern about the gig economy is that, uh, and companies like Uber and Skip the Dishes is, that it radically transforms uh, the, the relationship between employer and employee. Uh, up till now, we've sort of, as a society, uh, governments have said, look, we're going to set some basic standards. We're going to have uh, an Employment Standards Act that says you get vacation pay and you can't be called in for less than two hours a day and things like that. And we're going to have minimum wage laws and, and we're going to protect people's rights to organize and bargain collectively. Companies like Uber undercut all that because they define the people who are doing the work as contractors, not employees, and contractors aren't covered by any of those protections. There's no guarantee to minimum wage uh, or, or any other uh, sort of workplace rights that we've taken for granted over the years. So it really changes the dynamic to the disadvantage of the people who are doing the work. Uh, and governments have been remarkably slow to react to this in terms of changing the rules to give uh, to give employees who do that kind of work more rights. Right. But isn't that the very reason why a lot of people are drawn to the gig economy, whether it is something like an Airbnb or being an Uber driver or Lyft driver, that they want to be able to just work a couple of hours. They want that freedom of doing that. And they know fully going into it what they're doing, that they're not going into a secure job with benefits and vacation pay. They're going into this this kind of gig economy work. Uh, well, I don't know if they know that. I mean, they may know that, but they also have no choice, right? New Ogre, uh sets all the rules for the people in that workplace. Uh, and they don't even have the opportunity, for example, to uh, say, you know, as a group, we, we think this policy is, is wrong or is illegal, and we're going to take you to court and challenge this because Uber makes them sign an agreement as part of this uh, that the only way they can challenge any company decision is to go to arbitration. And that arbitration is in the Netherlands. And the cost to an employee is more than $14,000 to even start the process. So the game is sort of rigged on their behalf. This really isn't about uh, the gig economy being a bad thing. I mean, I've been doing uh, most of the last 25 years in the gig economy. The, the, uh, the need is for some basic rules around it that protects people and restores the balance of power between these companies and the individual. I mean, I think the gig economy is great, and I think that kind of flexibility is great, but there's no reason that minimum wage can't apply to those jobs and that other basic employment rules can't apply to those jobs or that people doing those jobs uh, can't organize and bargain collectively for better agreements with the company. Should it come, though, from the employers, or sorry, the employees, and if people are upset, because, I mean, the choice is, if you don't like the rules, you don't have to work in the gig economy, but if there is a push for a change, should that not come from the employees themselves? Absolutely. Uh, but that's really, really difficult. Um, they're, you know, they're individuals, they're scattered. That's one of the other interesting changes is that uh, in the past, you know, employees showed up at a workplace at CKNW and 
Uh, they could get together in the coffee room and say, hmm, you know, I think this policy really stinks. Or, you know, I think that, uh, that the company's not following the Employment Standards Act. They're, they're doing something that is breaking the law. And together they can go, yeah, well, let's, let's go and meet with management and talk about that. Or let's file a complaint uh, collectively. Um, the gig economy companies, the big ones, say, make you sign a contract saying you can't file a complaint collectively. Every complaint has to be individual. And there's no workplace, right? You never see the other people who are doing the work. Uh, you have no opportunity to get together. So, uh, again, the traditional ways of dealing with this aren't particularly effective. And that's what the companies count on. Right. Is there is there a balance or is there a compromise to be made in that you mentioned minimum wage and there's no reason why these types of companies can't ensure that employees at least get minimum wage. Uh, but what but when we're talking about other things, say vacation pay or paid vacation, I think I mean, part isn't part of the reason that these companies work this way is because they don't follow those traditional rules of, that other companies would follow. Yeah, they work this way because it's cheaper. Right. Um, they can pay people less and they can uh, give people different rights. We're not, I'm not really talking about or governments, and some governments have taken steps in this way. It's not talking about lavish benefits for people doing this work. We've agreed collectively the, that the Employment Standards Act, for example, in British Columbia applies to all full and part-time employees, not contractors, which is the loophole that these companies use. These, it's not generous. It's not expensive for employers to follow these basic rules. And there's no particular reason why they couldn't apply to companies in this new area. And part of what, part of what makes it, or should make it concerning, I think, is that, uh, as we explored in the series in the TIE, uh, it's ex- these kinds of things are expanding very quickly. So uh, Uber now has Uber Works, for example. And the goal with that, they started in two cities, is that rather than just supplying drivers, uh, they'll supply people to do all kinds of work, who presumably would still be contractors. So... If I've got a fast food restaurant, instead of hiring uh, people to work behind the counter, who would be covered by employment standards, I would just call Uber and say 76 people, and they wouldn't be the employees of anyone. Uh, California, and you mentioned this in the piece, that California is looking at making it so that uh, workers would be classified as employees and then would be protected that way. Would you like to see that happen in BC? Yeah, I mean, I think this... uh, that's the most obvious solution is to, is to uh, change the test for who's a contractor and who's an employee. And in BC right now, uh, it's fairly easy to have people classified as, uh, as contractors and compared to California. And I think it's totally legitimate again for it is a balancing act. I think you're completely right when you say that. And as almost everything in the workplace is, you know, you know only a few uh, sort of free market not say there should be no rules and people should be able to hire children or pay $2 an hour or do whatever they can get away with. Most people agree you sort of balance the power between employees and employers. And that's what's really needed in this case. So one easy solution is to uh, make it harder for people to be classed as contractors and more and the default for them to be classed as employees. Uh, Another is to create a new category. And some jurisdictions have looked at this and say, and, and the, the gig economy companies, the big ones, are interested in this option. That's what they're now that the California laws come in. They're saying, wait, wait, wait. We'd like to do things differently. Maybe we can have a semi-contractor classification where some of the protections apply, but we can still maintain the flexibility that people want. Uh, so there are solutions. The, the big thing is to 
Uh, and that's what we were trying to do with this series in the Thai. Big thing is because let's start talking about it and think about it. All right. Uh, Paul, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time. But thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for the chance to talk about it.